Well, the backlash was immediate and harsh. Um, people who had invested themselves over eight seasons and 73 episodes of the recent phenomena that we know of as Game of Thrones, which this is not an endorsement of that, but, uh, but it was a cultural phenomenon. People invested a lot of time in it. And it was interesting to me to watch as it came to the conclusion that one of the characters who many people had been rooting for, who was going to be the hero, who was going to set things right, um, met with a very violent end in a very subversive way. And people lost their collective minds. I mean, they just couldn't believe that that's the way that it ended. They, that their hero, the one that they had invested in, the one that they wanted so badly to do well, in the end wasn't that person. In the end, she turned out to be just as corrupt or corrupted as the very thing she was fighting. And while a lot of people were making threats and saying how disappointed they were, that particular element of the show, I thought, was spot on. I actually thought that if, if, if they got anything right in the show, that they got that right. Because that's the way power works. And honestly, I thought the reaction... Was, was very revealing as well because it showed where we put our hopes, how we are trained to invest our attachments, our hope, our faith. You see, we want a king, but we just want a good king. We don't like, we may not like the king we have, but, but, but we want another king with that. And we get to Jesus, we see in Jesus something very different. You see, Jesus didn't come to replace Caesar, a bad Caesar, with a good Caesar, a bad king with a good king. Jesus came bringing a kingdom that was something totally different. Jesus came to bring a whole way of being in the world. Jesus came to be, bring a whole way of understanding power and authority and rule. He wasn't just replacing one bad thing with one good thing. He was replacing the whole thing. But as we'll see, we get invested in our authorities. We get invested in our power structure. We get invested in our heroes. And we want Jesus to reflect that. We want God to reflect that. And when it doesn't work out, just like the millions of fans who got bent out of shape at the end of a TV miniseries, we get pretty bent out of shape. So that's what we're going to see a little bit of today as we look into the book of Mark. So pray with me as we start. God, we trust you to do your work in us through your word, through the reading and the proclaiming of your word, which is holy, capable, effective for everything that it is intended to do. So work your word in us now as we listen through the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen. So we're in the book of Mark. We've only been here a couple weeks. We need to remember that everything in Mark rests on the proclamation of the kingdom. The time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God is near. Repent and, replay and believe the gospel. This was Jesus' um, proclamation. Everything that we're going to encounter in Mark stems from this. So now we're down into chapter 2, starting with verse 1, if you're following along. 
And someday, now, after some days, when he returned to Capernaum, the news spread that he was home. So many gathered that there was no longer any room, not even by the door. And he preached the word to them. Some people came in, bringing a paralytic carried by four of them. When they were not able to bring him in because of the crowd, they removed the roof above Jesus. Then, after tearing it out, they lowered the stretcher the paralytic was lying on. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the experts in the law were sitting there turning these things over in their mind. Why does this man speak this way? He's blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? Remember last week we talked about how Jesus is assuming authority to do these things. Makes him different than the other teachers. Now immediately when Jesus realized in his spirit that they were contemplating such thoughts, he said to them, why are you thinking such things in your heart? Which is easier to say to the paralytics, your sins are forgiven, or, or to say, stand up, take your stretcher and walk. But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I tell you, stand up, take up your stretcher and go home. And immediately the man stood up, took his stretcher and went out in front of them. They were all amazed and glorified God saying, we have never seen anything like this before. Jesus went out again by the sea. A whole crowd came after him, and he taught them. They were going out. As he went along, he saw Levi, son of Alphaeus, sitting at the tax booth. Follow me, he said. And he got up and followed him. As Jesus was having a meal in Levi's home, many tax collectors and sinners were eating with Jesus and his disciples. For there were many who followed him. When the experts in the law and the Pharisees saw that he was eating with sinners and tax collectors, they said to his disciples, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners? Then Jesus heard this. When Jesus heard this, he said to them, those who are healthy don't need a physician, but those who are sick do. I have, come not, I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Now John's disciples and the Pharisees were fasting, so they came to Jesus and said, Why do the disciples of John and the disciples of the Pharisees fast, but your disciples don't fast? And Jesus said to them, A wedding guest cannot fast while the bridegroom is with them, can they? As long as they have the bridegroom with them, they do not fast. But the days are coming when the bridegroom will be taken from them. And at that time they will fast. No one sews a patch of unshrunk cloth onto an old garment. Otherwise the patch pulls away, the new from the old, and the tear becomes worse. No one pours old, new, wine skin, new wine into old wineskins. Otherwise, the wine will burst the skins, and both the wine and the skin will be destroyed. Instead, new wine is poured into new wineskins. So here at Grace, in this new season that we're in, we've been talking about this balance between head, hand, and heart with that of how these three are going together. And again, what we see here is that there is no differentiation between faith and action in our modern society, influenced more by Greek culture, even though we're, we think of ourselves as modern, but it's, it's Greek philosophy working its way, Enlightenment philosophy working its way down through the ages. We tend to separate those things out. You can think one thing, act another way, that we can separate those things out. That is not what we see evidence of in Scripture. Jesus' authority is, reached, is proclaimed with what he says, but also what he does, and more, and, and equally as important, what he loves and who he loves. Listen, inviting 
or sitting down to a table with tax collectors and sinners wasn't, wasn't just, hey, I'm hungry in this place. Ah, it's not my choice. I'm going to sit down there. No, that is a declaration of affection for a people who were hated. Table fellowship was everything in this culture. Who sat at your table determined who you were in fellowship with, who you loved, who was part of your group, your family, the people that you associated with. That meant everything. So when Jesus went and sat at this table, he was declaring something radical. Head, hand, heart, all together. Jesus had integrity of these three things that we see. He sees it also. It's interesting that when the, when the, the four friends lower their paralyzed friend through the ceiling, Jesus didn't look at them and go, oh, wow, they're faithful by looking into their minds. No, he saw their actions. They're, he saw the faith that led them to tear apart a ceiling and to put their friend who had no other hope in front of Jesus. It was in their actions. But as we see, the people are responding, the experts, the very people who should know, who should be the most attuned to the things that God's are doing, they're having a big problem with Jesus. What's the rub? Or as we ask here a lot of times, what's the thing behind the thing? What is, is it just that he's violating the law? Is it just that Jesus isn't doing things the way that they want to do? Or is there something else? What is the thing behind the thing? You see, it's easy, to, it's easy to side with Jesus and throw shade on the Pharisees. But we have to be careful. The need for order, the need for practices and mores, habits and rituals, is essential for all of us. Listen, it's, this is not a question of are we going to have habits or not? Are we going to have practices or not? Are we going to have routine or not? We, we all have to have that. We all have to have ways to define when we come together, how we come together, what's acceptable, what's not. Listen, all of it, we have to have those things as a society. Otherwise, there would be utter chaos. No one would get anything done. We wouldn't know how to navigate. We need those things. So the problem here is not that the Pharisees had rules. It's not that the Pharisees had rules, not that they had expectations, not that they had laws. They desperately needed him. And as a matter of fact, they served them well for a purpose, for a time period. Those laws, those, those practices that the Jews had, they served them well in the midst of a, constantly being invaded and carried off into captivity and brought back. They needed those things to anchor them, to root them. But by the time Jesus comes, we see that there is something else going on here. Jesus isn't saying that those rituals are bad in and of themselves, but the Pharisees had come to believe that God had given the law as a means of carving out this sphere of holiness and righteousness on the earth. That the very presence of God on earth depended on how they believed and behaved. That the boundaries of the law prescribed between sin and righteousness, clean and unclean, sacred in time and space, and profane Jew and Gentile, could not be breached without losing God's presence. They had come to believe that it was their works, their practices, their cultural identity in these practices was the thing that was bringing God. It's so easy for us to do, y'all. 
we do the same thing so easily. We start to think that God comes and goes depending on our behaviors. That God shows up when we're good, that God abandons us when we're bad. And we live under this, this, this weight of shame and guilt of transactional religion. As much as we proclaim freedom in, in Jesus and grace, we even name our church grace, as much as we proclaim it, it is so hard to practice. It is so hard, as we say time and time again, to let ourselves be unconditionally loved by God. But Jesus comes in with this blazing proclamation that time has come for a new vision of things, a new way of experiencing the presence of God among people, a new way of practicing righteousness and goodness, of being clean and understanding what is sacred and holy. God through Jesus is not so much denigrating the old as proclaiming the new. The thread running through these controversies and get this, the thread, this is a quote from, and this is all in our learning guide this week, so I'm, I'm taking a lot from our learning guide. It's really important that we see this, so I'm going to reiterate it, and, it's, and you can read it again in the learning guide. The thread running through these controversies is that human need, the human need for wholeness, for acceptance, for sustenance, for healing, is much more fundamental to God's will for humanity than, to main, than maintaining the present, soon to be old, order. You see, when we default to order, when we default to control, when we default to the things that we know that we can have power over, we start to move away from God. That's when we start to move away from God. Jesus in this in this in everything that he does in our passage this week is proclaiming this new order and what he is doing is recentering and demonstrating the love of God there that is not based purely on the old existing order but on something new that God is doing. And I want to read this I want to read this a lot of this again it comes from the it comes it's in the learning guide. Because I think it's essential that we hear this and we get this. Indeed, what Jesus' opponents lack, and importantly later in the gospel, it also comes to include the disciples. Because let me tell you, it wasn't just the experts of the law and the Pharisees that were having a problem with Jesus. It was his disciples. It was the people that he called to follow him. The people that ate and drank and slept, walked the roads with him. They, us still struggled to understand it. Jesus begins his ministry in Mark with the proclamation that the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. So what's new about Jesus isn't exactly what he's saying and doing. His elevation of the concern for human need over ritual observance of the laws is a, part, is a firm part of Israel's tradition. That's the other thing is, it's new, but it's also old. We see this time and time again. That's, that's why we have the table built like it is. The ancient, present kingdom coming. God is always going back. He's always pulling back the threads. He's always bringing to fruition the seeds that have been planted that may have lied fallow. He's doing this. When he starts to do this, when he starts to heal on the Sabbath, when he starts to put the, the, the needs of bringing those who have been cast out into community, he is echoing the words of Amos. 
I hate, I despise your festivals, said the prophet Amos. He said, let justice roll down like the waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. I desire mercy but not sacrifice. Jesus is embodying the prophets. Yes, it's a new thing, but it's also an old thing. It's a bringing to conclusion or fruition the old things that were there. This lack of recognition, though, on the part of Jesus' opponents and his disciples will have ominous consequences in his saying about the bridegroom being taken away when he mentions that. The world's present order is built not around serving human need, but about domination and drawing clear boundaries between insiders and outsiders to to preserve power and status. Thus, living in the way Jesus does and the way he calls us, his followers, to do will inevitably lead to conflict. Y'all, we can't can't escape it. How I wish we could. How I wish we could. But it inevitably leads to conflict. Conflict with powers, with the, the way that we do things, the way that the world works, the way that we're used to, our own habits, our own desires. And again, these are, this is not conflict with people. This is, this is forces. And we, we say it all the time, people are not the problem. People are not the problem. It's, behind, it's what the thing behind the thing. More than any other gospel, Mark portrays the disciples as also lacking the insight and knowledge necessary to hear and follow Jesus, which is stunning when we remember that this was Peter's gospel. This is, this is Peter saying this, and he's admitting that they didn't get it. He portrays the disciples as lacking the insight and knowledge necessary to hear and follow Jesus due to the same fear of such a radical new way of being in the world. They are also blind and deaf, and their own hearts are hardened. This is Mark's way of turning the spotlight on his audience, on us. The fearful striving for self-preservation that prevents people from crossing boundaries for others is a human problem. And we see it today, everywhere, and maybe especially in the church. So what are we going to do about it? Are we going to try to are we going to try to slip the new boot on over the old boot? Because we're going to have to make some serious choices. We're going to have to make some hard choices as a church going forward. When are we going to meet? How are we going to meet? How are we going to structure? What are we going to do? What are our new habits and practices going to be, right? It's not we're not throwing stuff out. We're not throwing habits, practices, things out. But what is that new rhythm going to be like in this new season? We're going to have to make some hard decisions about that. We're going to have to orient, and are we going to orient ourselves to our own comfort and convenience? Are we going to to keep our old shoes on? Try to slip the new one on? Or maybe are we going to just go a little bit? We're just going to try to make some minor stuff. You know, we're going to walk around like this. One shoe off, one shoe the old, one shoe the new. I can tell you, this is not comfortable right now, okay? This, just, this is not a way to walk around very long with that. 
Or are we going to recognize that time has come for the new? Not that the old was even necessarily bad, but the time has come for the new. The old has got us here. But it's time to slip on the new. And with that, any of those, y'all who wear boots, you know it takes a little while to break in. They can be stiff. They can hurt your feet, cramp your toes. It takes a while. But they will break in. And the way you break them in is you wear them a lot. You wear them every day. You wear them everywhere. That's how you break in new boots. And that's how we break in new habits, new structures, is we do it a lot. We don't do it halfway. We do it a lot. 